0: Welcome to the New Books Network. From the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, I'm Robert Boynton. In this episode of The Vault, a 2011 talk by Deirdre Baer about the artist Saul Steinberg, Baer received the 1978 National Book Award for her biography of Samuel Beckett. Since then, she has written biographies of Simone de Beauvoir, Anais Nin, Carl Jung, Al Capone, and, in 2019, a memoir, Parisian Lives, Samuel Beckett, Simone de Beauvoir, and Me. A longtime member of the New York Institute for the Humanities, Bear published her biography of Saul Steinberg in 2012.
1: Thank you, Jerry, and thank you all for coming. Usually I'm very calm when I have to do public speaking, but I'm very nervous today because there are so many people in this room who knew Saul Steinberg, worked with Saul Steinberg, love Saul Steinberg, and have their very own Saul Steinbergs. It reminds me of Virginia Woolf's wonderful remark, each of us has as many as a thousand selves, and happy the biographer who captures six or seven of them. I'm gonna start by reading my first chapter, which is one and a half pages long, and then I'm gonna talk to you. It begins when the Romanian-born Saul Steinberg was 26 years old. He had just graduated with an architecture degree from a university in Milan, and he was already embarked on a successful career as a cartoonist for several Milanese newspapers. Saul Steinberg's Italian diploma in architecture stated clearly that he was of the Hebrew race, which meant that he was forbidden to work in Milan in 1940. He was a Romanian citizen, but his passport had been canceled, making him a stateless person, bound to be rounded up by Mussolini's fascist police, and sent to an internment facility, the Italian version of a concentration camp. Although he was well known for his satirical drawings and cartoons in two of Milan's leading humor newspapers, He lived for several months as a hunted man who never stayed long in any one place. His Italian girlfriend hid him in her room, and her friends hid him in theirs. His classmates from school did the same. But Milan was really a small town and difficult to hide in for long. It was only a matter of time until he would oversleep and be arrested in one of the daily 6 a.m. sweeps through the poorer parts of town and then loaded onto a train with others who had run afoul of the fascisti and sent to an internment facility. Those on the run heard rumors that suspects who surrendered voluntarily were treated better than those who were caught in the daily raids. And so on the advice of his friends, Steinberg turned himself in at the neighborhood police station. And shortly after, he was indeed shipped off to an internment facility, Tortoretto. The train ride to Tortoretto was the start of a long series of peregrinations that eventually took him from Milan by plane to Lisbon twice, to Rome by train, to New York via ship, and then to four days in a holding pen on Ellis Island until the ship that took him to exile in the Dominican Republic was ready to sail. A year later, Through the intercession of everyone, from Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt to his American uncles and cousins, to several international publishers, agents, and the editors of The New Yorker, he was finally admitted to the United States. He took his first legal footsteps on American soil in Miami, and from there he took a Greyhound bus, one of his favorite modes of travel to New York. Several months later, in one single day, Saul Steinberg became, one, a United States citizen, two, an ensign, a commissioned officer in the United States Naval Reserve, and via Naval Intelligence, a member of the fledgling OSS, later the CIA, under the auspices of Wild Bill Donovan, who wanted him despite examinations in which Navy doctors declared him both physically and psychologically unfit for service. (laughs) (laughs) Ensign Saul Steinberg, USNR, was sent to Washington, D.C. for a brief period of training in psychological warfare to prepare for an overseas posting where his considerable knowledge of languages would complement his artistic ability. He, who was fluent in his native Romanian and Italian, who had excellent French and good German, who could get by in Spanish and a smattering of Portuguese, and whose English was, let's just say, comprehensible, he was sent by his superiors to be a spy in inland China. (laughs) And that, as he was fond of remembering, was the start of the Americanization of Saul Steinberg and of his lifelong love affair with all things American. So now I'm going to tell you just a little bit about how I came to write his biography, and then I'm going to give you a brief introduction to his life and work. I was probably like so many Americans who first met Steinberg in the pages of The New Yorker Back in the days when there was no table of contents and we'd rifle through to scan the titles of the articles and then go to the end to see who wrote them. But I think I was like everyone else who every time I saw a drawing, a cartoon, I stopped. I wanted to read them. And Steinberg's always caught my attention. And the attention was caught nine times out of 10 by my thinking, just what did he mean by that? How am I supposed to interpret this one? All those numbers, those letters, those squiggles and curlicues, those funny animals and ferocious figures, those brutalist buildings and chaotic street scenes, what was this man getting at? I remember that I was a graduate student in Paris, and I went without lunch to buy a Steinberg print, and that was many years ago, and it's hung in my home office for many, many years. Every time I raise my eyes, first from the typewriter now from the computer, that's the first thing I see. So I had this interest in Steinberg for so many years. And in 1907, there were two museum exhibitions here in New York at the Morgan and at the city of New York. And I was standing there trying to puzzle out, you know, what did, what do these drawings mean? And I came upon a caption that quoted Steinberg himself as having said, I am a writer who draws. And for me, that was it. That was the eureka moment, the elusive key that opened the first of many doors for me that led me to spend about three magical years searching for an understanding of his work. I learned that he had set up a foundation before his death in 1999 and that he left his archives, all 177 boxes of papers, to Yale's Beinecke Library. And I gave daily thanks for that because I live in New Haven. (laughs) And I had to go there every day for close to six months to read through them the first time. And I can't tell you how many times I went back, how many times I rushed down to check something out and go through them again. He saved everything. In those boxes, you will find the baby bib that his mother embroidered for him the souvenirs that he brought back from his worldwide travels, ticket stubs for baseball games, takeout menus from his favorite neighborhood restaurants. So, too, did he save correspondence, legal contracts, every single check and checkbook, stub, bank statement, IRS form that he ever filed, and none of it was cataloged. Everything was thrown haphazardly into the 177 boxes, along with his enormous postcard collection, his manga comics, he loved manga, rubber stamps that he had made to use in his art, and all the other junk, which he spelled J-U-N-Q-U-E. He loved junk. (laughs) So he saved all this, and it's really fascinating that he did this that he threw nothing away, despite the fact that there's a great deal in those boxes that doesn't reflect positively upon his character or his personality. It's very puzzling. He did say in his lifetime that every drawing he made was either an auto-geography or an auto-biography, and yet he was a man who hid so much about himself that he was constantly inventing stories, outright lies, to tell every person who ever came along to interview him. One of my favorite has been appearing in publications for years in which he said, well, I lost my laundry marker when I was in the Navy. So I used one of my rubber stamps that said top secret so I'd know which underwear was mine and damned if the censors didn't take it and I never got it back. Well, that's not true. (laughs) It just never happened, but that's the kind of thing that he did. Wren, uh, our noble leader, Wren Wexler, told me a wonderful story. Uh, He was one of many who told me about Steinberg's aversion to biography He said he and Steinberg happened to meet up in uh, the New Yorker offices one day, and uh, they were having a conversation about some of Steinberg's drawings that were going to appear in that week's issue. And so Wren was asking just simple questions about the artistic process, and Steinberg drew back and he said, what are you doing? What's going on here? Do you think you're writing my biography? And Wren said, no, I'm, I'm just asking you about how you work. So this is the way Steinberg would respond to the possibility of a biography. And yet at the end, he saved everything to make it easy for any biographer who came along. Wren didn't tell me the story until I was fairly well along in my writing. And so, you know, I can't help but wonder what he's going to think of probably 700 page book that will be copiously illustrated with his art. He called himself, as I said, a writer who draws And some of his closest friends were Vladimir Nabokov, William Gaddis, Eugenie Inesco, and Saul Bellow. Saul Bellow actually sent Steinberg work in progress to ask for his comments and corrections, which Steinberg made on the manuscripts there at Yale. They're in these boxes. But even so, the fact that Steinberg had friendships with these and so many other writers that time doesn't permit me to mention here now The primary task for me was how to use words to describe visual objects and how to acknowledge the visual creativity without undue association or undue reliance upon the facts and events of the life. This is, I think, a crucial question that many biographers ponder. Now I'm gonna tell you a little bit about his life. He was born in 1914 in a tiny town in Romania that he remembered as being such a peculiar place that the only reason it could possibly have been founded was for him to be born there. (laughs) And really everything about his origin was fairly comic, starting with his birthday depending on which calendar you use, it was either June 28th in the Gregorian calendar or June 15th in the Julian, which Romania was then phasing out, but not all at once, only region by region, which might be why his parents celebrated June 14th, because the calendar change confused them or because they simply lumped it in with all the other events of that historic day, June 14th. And he always liked to say that from the day he was born, the history of the world had been one big, enormous prank, and most of it had been played out on him. As an adult, just to go on with the birthday for a minute, he always celebrated June 16th because his favorite book was Joyce's Ulysses, and he thought of himself as a displaced Jewish wanderer, similar to Leopold Bloom. He called Romania a half-civilized, semi-oriental, self-indulgent country, and that was when he was in a good mood. Otherwise, he called it his fucking patria. As an adult, he refused to read the literature or speak its language, which he deemed was suitable only for policemen and thugs. One day, he was an old man. He phoned his compatriot, the writer Norman Minea, just to ask how Norman was, And Norman said, well, I'm fine. And Steinberg said, you can't be. Nobody who comes from that place can ever be fine, never. Well, the Steinberg family moved from the tiny town to Bucharest when Steinberg was between the ages of four and five. And his father had bought a small factory that made cardboard boxes for everything from individual lipsticks to candy, to carton containers for matzo balls, which was their primary source of income. The factory was Steinberg's playground, and there he was introduced to what passed for museum-worthy art in Romania, which were the rotogravure images on the candy boxes. He was especially captivated by the various sized type fonts that were used to print the commercial signs and the banners, and the wonderland, he called it, of embossed paper and colored cardboard and rubber stamps and wooden blocks of type. And as you know, many of these found their way into his adult drawings, particularly Millet's painting of the Angelus, uh, which he first encountered on a candy box, and the letters and words and punctuation marks that comprise some of his wittiest magazine covers and drawings. Some of you might remember that New Yorker cover with the big, flat, blocky letter E that has a thought bubble rising from it that contains a very slim and elegant italic letter E. That cover got the most fan mail to that date of any cover The New Yorker had published. And critics said, this is revolutionary. And Steinberg totally disagreed. He said, there's nothing special about a cover like that. These were simply things that he had always known punctuation marks in particular. He had a series of drawings that used question marks and quotation marks. He said, things represent themselves. You always wonder why the upper part of that question mark is passively following the ball below, or why is the top half of the exclamation point so rigid, so arrogant and egotistical? Well, that's just how they are. He called one of his favorite drawings, I Talk to My Nose About Childhood. And he did an ongoing series of noses, most of which he called Gogol's nose. And this was an image he took from his good friend Nabokov's curious so-called biography of Gogol, which begins with a startling image of Gogol on his deathbed, his nose covered in leeches as the doctors tried to bleed him back to life and health. This is just a digression here and you can see that I started out telling you about his childhood and I ended up talking about his art. And this is something that happened repeatedly as I wrote the book. For almost every sentence I wrote about his life, I could probably have offered a dozen or more drawings that I believe in some way were related to the events of the life. His parents came from large families of shopkeepers and his uncle sold everything from clocks and watches to fine jewelry to school supplies for children and cheap Christmas ornaments. These shops were all located where the Jewish quarter in Bucharest ended and the largest red light brothel district in the city began. It was called the Street of the Sun, but it was really a narrow rat infested alley. And every day when Steinberg walked to school, he passed brothels that began as cheap hovels, and the closer he got to the center of the city, they morphed into opulent palaces. The courtyard of the apartment block where he lived, where families like his lived solid working-class lives, poor country people would come down on Saturdays to sell their pitiful wares, and afterward, their women, matter-of-factly, went into the stairwells to offer themselves for sex. And the boy Steinberg, who later became what Roger Angel called a first-class noticer, took all this in, remembered it, and used it in his art. Jews were not considered to be legal citizens of Romania despite an 1878 Treaty of Berlin when world opprobrium forced the country to grant them full rights. And by the end of World War I, Jews were still denied full citizenship so that when Steinberg started to go to high school and he had to take the tram across Bucharest every day to get there, he witnessed and experienced ugly incidents that became some of his most vivid memories. He said no outsider could understand the degree of anti Semitism that he knew as a boy in Romania. He said he was humiliated, beaten, cursed, and worse, just for being a Jew. When he came to America and he traveled in pre-civil rights Mississippi, he compared the situation of African Americans to his own in his cesspool of a country. And here, just another brief digression. Throughout his life, he became a staunch supporter of civil rights and liberal causes, and he was a generous donor of both money and art to both. And I won't get specific, I won't um, reference any of the actual art, but starting around the 1970s, when the New Yorker began to publish more and more political content in art and articles, he contributed a, a, a great many drawings that had an overtly political content. I'm going back now to when he was in high school and he was a member of something called the Serious Boys, which meant that even though they all had an eye for girls, They were content to read books and discuss literature. He was in junior high school when he first read the Russian novelist Dostoevsky. when he first read Zola. He read all of this in French translation because in Bucharest at that time, they were very fond of calling themselves the Paris of the Balkans, and they tried to emulate all things French. Even his high school had a French name, the Lycee Basarab, It was a good school, and he was uh, a modestly good student. He wasn't particularly remarkable, and he didn't do very well in drawing. (laughs) So when it was time for him to think about a university career, his choices were limited. One profession that was open to smart Jewish boys who had not excelled academically was architecture, because by the late 1920s, There was so much construction going on in Bucharest, everything from massive government buildings to huge new apartment houses and opulent luxury private villas. But meanwhile, the infrastructure was in a shambles and they needed bridges and roads as well. So most of the Jewish boys were shunted into those areas where they were really very little more than contractors, even though they were contractors with steady jobs and good salaries. Well, Steinberg did enroll in the University of Bucharest, but in the School of Humanities because the School of Architecture rejected him. And the admissions committee noted, this candidate has a middling ability in math and he is totally deficient in drawing skills. (laughs) He wasn't unhappy about this rejection because he really wanted to be a writer in those days and he thought art would be a sideline but he knew that his parents would never have supported him on such an uncertain career path. And there were a number of boys in his neighborhood who also had not been admitted to the School of Architecture, and they were both very busy researching foreign schools of architecture where they could go. And it was easiest for him to go along with him. They were going to end up in Milan, so he said, why not? I'll go too. And that's how he got to Milan. That's how he got to Italy. But in later life, after he had his architecture degree... He said, thank God I never had to practice that profession. So he followed his neighbors to Milan in the Regio Politecnico, and from 1933 to 36, he drifted along, in his words, mostly in poverty and loneliness, so hungry that he looked at foods in shop windows and dreamed of eating them, and ogled girls that he could only afford to dream of as well. He took his courses, but he didn't take his exams. He just spent most of his time drawing what was around him. And in 1936, encouraged by some of his friends, he simply walked into a newly founded satirical newspaper called Bertoldo, where the editors bought them on the spot. And then all of a sudden, everything changed. He described his next two years as sheer paradise because the editors bought almost everything he submitted. In fact, he sold in two years 204 drawings and cartoons to a weekly newspaper. And these were only the ones that he signed, because in 1938, when Mussolini instituted the racial laws that prohibited Jews from working, his friends on Bertoldo and another satirical newspaper called Set de Bello still bought his work, and they printed it unsigned. In those two magical years, Steinberg was flush with money. He had more than enough to eat in good restaurants, to buy clothing, and he was always a bit of a dandy, those of you who knew him later in life. He could indulge his pension for as many women as he wanted, although he had one steady girlfriend, the mysterious Ada, who he really thought he was going to marry and with whom he had an ongoing lifelong relationship. In short, Saul Steinberg had become Italian, and he was convinced that he would spend the rest of his life in Italy as a rich, well-known, and respected cartoonist and artist. So it was a shock of major proportion when Mussolini's racial edicts went into effect. First, Steinberg was told he had to leave the country. Then he was told, no, he could stay, but only until he received his degree, but he had exactly one academic year to get it. And that meant he had to take and pass the exams for 16 courses. He had to write a thesis and he had to create an original architecture project. But even if he did all this, the diploma would still carry the detested phrase that Saul Steinberg was of the Hebrew race, which meant that he could not practice architecture in Italy or in Romania because by 1939 his passport had expired And Romania was busily becoming a German ally and starting to get rid of its own Jewish population. So his passport wasn't renewed. And he was stuck in Italy, a stateless Jew, penniless, except for the occasional bit of money his family could send him, or whatever his newspaper friends could quietly send his way. It's generally believed that those wonderful phony documents, as they were called, those mock diplomas and certificates and everything, had their origin at this time. Those unreadable documents that he made, that he gave to his friends, primarily gave one to Primo Levi. He was very, very happy to do that because Primo Levi's diploma also said of the Hebrew race and was worthless. So clearly Steinberg had to go somewhere else. And the drive to get him over here to America started with his father's brothers, Harry Steinberg in New York and Martin in Denver. Harry's daughter, Her husband was a high-ranking employee of Paramount Films in New York, and she was the private secretary to Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt, who had all sorts of contacts in the Washington bureaucracy. And they both approached, all these people approached Harold Ross at the New Yorker, only to find that Ross already knew about Steinberg, as did his art editors. They were all aware of him through his Italian agent, who had been steadily selling Steinberg's drawings in South America, and was starting to have the same success in New York, Steinberg's drawings had already appeared in that leftist newspaper PM, Town and Country, Life, and Mademoiselle. So even before Steinberg set foot on American soil, while he was in exile in the Dominican Republic, he was already known and talked about in certain creative circles. Well, unfortunately, for him because the Romanian quota was filled. He did have to go to the Dominican Republic for a year until the end of June, 1942. And when he got here, he had a lot of Italian emigre friends who were already working as editors and designers. So they gave him commissions on magazines like Interiors. And he started to, to do an awful lot of advertising, drawing, commercial drawing, commercial work, which he did until around 1960. And his friends all lived downtown, all his Italian emigre friends. So Steinberg joined them. His first American home was the old Hotel Adams on 6th Avenue and 11th Street. And the first thing he noticed about New York was its architecture, which he thought was heavily indebted to Cubism. He said, there are two other influences besides Cubism constructivism and what he called, all one word, Fernand Legerism. There was, of course, wartime rationing, restriction, blackouts, but everything he saw, he said, left him in a state of utter delight. Everywhere he looked, he saw something that became one of his lifelong totems from the Chrysler Building where he said, Art Deco is merely cubism turned decorative to what he called the sensuous plastic curves and neon bright colors of larger than life jukeboxes to women's dresses which were necessarily short to conserve fabric to their shoes which were usually high with platform soles and stiletto spike heels and women who had upswept hairdos and elaborate rolls and curls and men whose neckties were large and bright and splashed upon Colorful zoot suits in rebellion against the drab khaki of uniforms, the Statue of Liberty in the Empire State Building became icons, taxis, those old DeSotos and Pontiacs, were bursts of colorful red and yellow, billboards were a revelation in text and type, everything assaulted his senses from the noise, the dirt, the confusion of the streets to the English spoken by, and forgive me for this, New Yorkers, as he tried to say. He said it was such a very American world. He said it was so very optimistic. He regretted that he couldn't assimilate it. In later years, he said one of his biggest regrets was that he was so overwhelmed by the sensations that he could only sketch it, and he had not made large paintings and drawings of what he saw. America for him in 1942 was disarming. It was a place always looking for a gimmick. It was a country that had amusement park qualities. Times Square was a Luna Park. And Sixth Avenue, I love his description of Sixth Avenue, quote, luminous like a Canaletto, the pink gold brown, the even light of the houses bordering the Grand Canal. Well, I'm sure that as I've been giving you all these words, you've been thinking of images that are related to them. So there he was then wandering the streets of New York, once again, penniless and lonely. And he received an invitation from another Romanian refugee, the painter Hedda Stern, who had seen his drawings and wanted to meet the man who drew them. She was Romanian also. And if you remember that Life Magazine photo called the irascibles of all the abstract expressionists, the painters that included everyone from Rothko and de Kooning to Pollock, you will remember Hedda, the sole woman standing among them, a beautiful woman dressed all in black. When Steinberg saw her on that Sunday afternoon in February, he knew at once that this was the woman he wanted to marry. When he came back from the war, he did. This relationship was so complex that there were times when I was writing his biography that I had to stop myself from writing hers. She was a remarkable woman who lived such a life of the mind that the purity of her thought and behavior were stunning in the literal sense of that word, not only to me, but to almost everyone else who ever met her. She died this year at the age of 100, and she left behind a body of work that's only now being given its long overdue recognition. She and Steinberg lived together until 1960, but all the while that he was totally dependent on being her husband, he was also leading an independent life on several fronts. First of all, he traveled constantly, both throughout the United States and Europe, and second, He had a steady string of ongoing affairs and casual one-night stands. Hedda told me Saul would have had an affair every 30 seconds if he could have managed it. In 1960, he met a German girl, 25 years his junior. She was the daughter of a low-level Nazi whose job was to make sure the trains carrying the Jews passed efficiently through the rail yards he supervised. Few of Steinberg's friends could understand this relationship, but Hedda Stern did. The girl, Sigrid Spaeth, known as Gigi, was so physically beautiful that Hedda called her Saul's ideal woman. Hedda also called this relationship the 35 years war, because even though Steinberg never divorced Hedda, he and Gigi were off again, on again, together while apart, until her death in 1996. Still throughout these years, Saul spoke on the phone to Hedda every day, sometimes more than once, and if he was away, he wrote her letters with the same frequency. Once late in his life, Saul asked Hedda, why do I have the need to be in such close contact with you? And Hedda had an immediate answer. That's easy, she said, because we're the two people on this earth who love you best of all. LAUGHTER I'm just going to stop here with the relationships because they were so complex. So I'm going to go back to his life during the war. He served in three theaters of war, the Asia Pacific, North Africa, and Europe, despite, as the officer who inducted him into the service said, this applicant has just about everything disqualifying that could exist. He led a very dangerous war Hedda told me a story I particularly liked about this of how one day Saul showed up at her apartment with his ensigns uniform in a box and he didn't know how to get dressed so she helped him put it on and it was such a beautiful day they decided to take a walk down Madison Avenue and so they were walking down the street and they kept passing sailors who kept putting their hands to their head and Saul didn't have very much English at that time so he turned ahead and he said what are they doing? What's happening here? What am I supposed to do? So she said she didn't know. So she took the next sailor they passed aside and he said, I'm saluting an officer, ma'am. And so Saul said, well, what am I supposed to do? And the sailor said, you're supposed to salute me back, sir. So they went around the corner into a doorway and Saul practiced learning how to salute. (laughs) And he was very unhappy because the rest of the afternoon they didn't pass a single sailor. But that's how his military career began. His wartime experiences led to some of the most influential and popular art the New Yorker had shown during the war. The Office of War Information realized that Steinberg's scenes of GI daily life made terrific propaganda that could help the morale of the folks at home. He drew scenes of mail call, mess hall meals, things that the soldiers and sailors did overseas Indeed, his first cover on The New Yorker showed a group of soldiers in a Chinese restaurant eating their dinners with chopsticks. After the war in 1946, his graphic descriptions of the hell that was the destruction of Monte Cassino and the vaporization of Hiroshima were shown at MoMA when the influential curator Dorothy Miller chose him to be among the 14 Americans who were to represent everything new and exciting in American art. Steinberg was featured along with Motherwell, Noguchi, many other luminaries, most of whom became his friends. And this brings me to the question of where to put him, how to classify him. 14 Americans was the first time that his place in the art world was questioned. The reviewer for the New York Times said he thought it was, quote, a safe guess that Steinberg never dreamed his cartoons would someday be museum pieces. Why do they include him? What's that stuff got to do with art? These were questions that were asked in 1946 and they resounded until Steinberg's death in 1999. I talked about this with his good friend, the artist, Mary Frank, when I interviewed her. And Mary said, he was someone who was not treated as the great artist that he was, people would say, yes, he's fantastic. But then they'd call him a cartoonist as if the word cartoonist had a bad edge to it. Here he was in the 1960s and 70s when he was extremely famous. But when there was a big show of US art in Europe, he was never included. So I asked Heather Stern about this. I asked if it was hard for him to accept and she gave me a kind of roundabout answer. She said, Other artists felt safe with Saul because they did not consider him a competitor. That's why he had so many friends in the art world. They looked down on him as a mere cartoonist. But what they didn't realize was that he was a genius. He could not put his pen to paper without doing something marvelous every time. Hedda said, He always knew who he was, and he was satisfied with that. But this was a major question for me when I tried to assess his posthumous reputation. He got a front page obit in the New York Times where the dichotomy between artist and cartoonist was evident at the very beginning. The headline writer called him an epic doodler. The obit writer called him a metaphysically minded artist and cartoonist who was solely responsible for raising illustrated comics to fine art. Milton Glaser commented upon this. Glaser said, yes, he was a cartoonist, but he was one who by some extraordinary series of shifts became a major artist. He was the only visual artist who had been able to achieve the highest status as both. The question of place is one that informs my biography on many different levels and in many different areas. Steinberg moved in so many different circles during his lifetime, and there are so many people in this room who knew him well. He moved from New York's old society to the newly moneyed classes. He moved from the old guard left-wing intellectuals to the movers and shakers who represented what he despised about what he believed the New Yorker had become in his last decade, the ones who had buzz. He was a bon vivant, he was a raconteur, he loved to hold forth, he was so witty that everyone usually let him talk. One night he was at an elegant salon and he was unusually quiet, and two of his good friends, Christo and Jean-Claude, were among the guests, and Jean-Claude went up to him and said, Saul, why do you look so sour? And he said, look at all these people. Look how they're all talking. And she said, yes, isn't it wonderful? Isn't this a wonderful evening? No, he said, none of them are listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> he kept a scrapbook of calling cards of European royalty, all of whom competed to entertain him. But he was most comfortable in the shabby homes of painters like Gervin Velde, Jean Elion, and Victor Bronner, where they talked about the philosophy of art. On a single evening in his date book, he had drinks with the Baroness Rothschild. Then the gallery owner, M.A. Macht, took him to the premiere of a Beckett play, and he went backstage to meet the author whom he didn't like at all. And then he went to a quick supper with Ionesco in his life, and then he ended the night by drinking with Giacometti. Nantalese can tell you better than anyone how she'd have to say, we already had a litany of the rich and famous or the wonderful and connected. We don't need another one. And it was tough to resist putting all of these wonderful encounters that he had into the book. To return to his work, he was compared to painters like Picasso and Clay, to writers like Beckett Esco and Joyce, and even to the films of Charlie Chaplin. To his lasting dismay, He was dubbed the man who did that poster, and you all know what I'm talking about, the view from Ninth Avenue. His reputation today is a curious one. His friend, the poet Charles Simic, said that in the years since he died, he has become both a familiar name and an artist in need of discovery. Such a fate would have puzzled him and confirmed his suspicion that the critics never had any idea what to do with him. He addressed him, him this himself way back in 1973 when he was already tired of being asked where his work belonged. I don't quite belong in the art, cartoon, or museum world, he said. They just say the hell with me because they feel he who has wings should lay eggs. He said his work fell squarely within the family of Stondahl and Joyce with a half nod toward Goya. He said, my purpose is to provoke my audience into looking for something beyond mere perception. That's what I'm playing with, the voyage between perception and understanding. And in the end, he said he was content to be what he wanted to be, the writer who draws. Thank you.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Micah Hazel. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.